You can now take KRBN Internet News Talk Radio with you on your mobile phone as we are making it easier to listen to the great hosts here on KRBN, including our very own West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. It's free and available on Google Play. Just look for player.fm. That's player.fm and search for KRBN. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bose No Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. And now, here's Jay. Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of the Bose Nose Show. And I'm your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bozovich. And we're coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira, where it's a bright, sunny afternoon after a pretty foggy, cold morning. Um, you know, definitely one of those days where you, you want the fireplace going uh, in the morning. It was Nice and icy with freezing fog, you know, something that maybe most people around the country don't get to experience, but we get it here in the Willamette Valley on a regular basis every winter. Um, so, you know, we've got a pretty packed show today because, you know, I took took a couple of weeks off with the holiday and, and, and some conflicts and all that, and it looks like we are going to have so much to talk about, but always would rather talk about what you want to talk about here on the Bose Nose Show. And the easiest way to get in is to call us here at 646-721-9887 and just press 1 so we know you want to talk because we do have people that call in to listen to the show because sometimes they're away from their computer and calling on a cell phone is the easiest way to listen, you know, throwing it on speaker or or you know, got their earbuds in or something like that. Hopefully they're doing hands-free on if they're driving. But, uh, again, it's 646-721-9887. Just press 1. That lets Robin, my call screener, and producer extraordinaire know you want to get in on the conversation. So, so much to talk about. You know, as we, you know, left the show, uh, we were getting ready to go into the governor's two-week freeze. And, um you know, it was a, one of those things where, you know, a decision she made without really consulting the counties, uh, another dictate from on high. Um, and while she was in that freeze, she made another decision without consulting the counties, which was to establish this um, new way of looking at, at county risk and how, what level they were going to be placed in. You know, before she was doing this thing, um, you know, at-risk counties where they would get some extra help from the state, et cetera, uh, and the level one, level twos, and all this stuff. Now we've got this this matrix that puts counties at, at different risk levels. Uh, there's low, uh, mod, uh, medium, or moderate, high, and uh, extreme. And uh, the the metrics she's using for that are the last two weeks of case data, et cetera, um, and testing data, which is interesting because that's the data that when we put graphs up, historic graphs on our website, we usually gray out the last two weeks and say it's subject to change <laughs> because it is. Uh, a lot of that data is, that, uh, you know, from even you know today or something like that could be a little bit different tomorrow as we sort out you know somebody that was a positive test um, or hospitalized here in Lane County actually their original residence might be Douglas County and that person really should have been counted in Douglas County's numbers or somebody in Douglas County should have been counted in Lane County's numbers or somebody that tested positive got retested because they did one of the quick tests and got the, the more definitive test and was confirmed to be negative. And, and they come off the list as a case. Um, you know, so those sort of things happen with that, you know, that last two weeks of data is in flux. But that's now the data we're going to use to judge our risk levels in counties. 
And Lane County got placed in the extreme level because they decide to set one of the metrics at whether or not you have more than 200 cases per 100,000 of population. So for Lane County with 375,000 people, you know, it basically means we can have, um, you know, in that two-week period, you know, we can have, you know, roughly 700 or so cases. Um, but, you know, it puts us into the extreme level if we get up that 800. Uh, and, you know, think about that daily case report, divide that by 14. It's not a whole lot of cases per day uh, to, to make us trip into the extreme level. The one place they also have is a test positivity rate being greater than 10% to put you in extreme. Our, our test positivity rate is, is below 4%. So we're nowhere close on that metric, but they set this other metric at a level that throws us into that extreme category. So just how they do that was never discussed with the counties. And, you know, whether it was good science to make the metrics the way they made them, but that's, you know, the way the governor's kind of been doing things on this whole thing is, is you know, they, they go out and hide in a room, her and the folks from OHA, and they just announce these edicts. And along with that risk matrix, you know, depending on whether you were low, moderate, high, or extreme, came levels of closures uh, and, and restrictions uh, that they, they want to put in place. And that's where it really starts getting unscientific. You know, besides being based on data that's in flux, now we're going to establish these closures that make no sense at all, and they're and they're the same statewide. You know, they did do something where they made large counties and small counties have a little bit different risk matrix. So I was talking mostly about the large county um, qualifications there, but the uh, you know. It, it, it was the the restrictions is really what drove me crazy because just like her freeze, she's chosen to shut fitness centers down. Now, mind you, I know of no outbreaks in Lane County associated with fitness centers so far during the COVID crisis. Zero cases tied to fitness centers. So why does it make sense to shut them down here in Lane County? The other thing it shuts down is in restaurant dining. Now, the one place we are seeing a lot of cases, and it's one of our leading places of transmission, is social gatherings in homes, in private homes and and you know, outside of restaurants. Now, if you can't go and dine in a restaurant, where are you likely to get together with friends to have food? Particularly carry-out food, which is now about the only way you can get food from a restaurant in Lane County under the governor's new restrictions. You're going to go home and socialize at home. And you're probably going to, you know, put some plates out, throw those containers of food out on the table, Put serving spoons in them, and then you're all going to touch that same serving spoon, and you're going to sit around the table in a space that's probably a whole lot smaller than a restaurant dining room without the same ventilation the restaurants are being required to install under the new OSHA rules. Um, and, 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 you know, who knows, you know, how well the, the kitchen table has been sanitized recently versus the restaurants being required to sanitize between each group of customers. Um, you know, you know, all those various things, and if, the, and if it's not carry-out food, if it's prepared from home, you know, you know, the person preparing it, you know, have they been tested? Are they wearing a mask? You know, are, are they doing all the things that restaurant workers are required to do about hand washing and all that? Um, you know, where has been the large outbreak of customers of a restaurant? Can you think of one that was in the news here in Lane County where a whole bunch of customers from any restaurant have been reported to be COVID positive or, or, or transmitted, you know, brought COVID home from dining at a restaurant? I don't think so. So here we've got these new restrictions that are basically going to decimate 
the fitness and restaurant industry here in Lane County with no cases and, and transmissions tied to those industries. Science-based decision-making. Now, if you really want to know where we're seeing transmissions in Lane County, our number one place right now is long-term care facilities. You know, the, the senior facilities, group homes, et cetera, that's our number one spot. About 35% of our cases are being generated out of there right now. Number two is workplace, and that's generally what we're seeing is transmissions in break rooms or, or you know, um, work uh, places like uh, manufacturing where people are close together and, and in indoor spaces. Uh, some of these, you know, food manufacturers we've seen outbreaks in, uh, that, that, that sort of thing. But the number three place we're seeing cases are associated with the University of Oregon. Almost 25% of our cases, almost a dead even match to workplace outbreaks. So of the 4,550 cases, we've had here in Lane County, almost 25%, 23.5% are from the University of Oregon and, some, and related to that. That's over 1,000 cases, and quite a few of those are related to the Greek system. There's you know, multiple that have been traced back to the dorms and residence halls. Um, you know, we're seeing you know, almost a quarter of our cases University of Oregon. Is there anything in that matrix that applies to the university system? Nada. Nothing in there. Now, if you want to go conspiracy theory on this, are restaurants and fitness centers employees public or private employees? Hmm. I think they might be private employees and have nothing to do with being employed by a state or local government. Now, what kind of employees are employed by the U of O? Ah, public employees. Public employees that are members of unions like SEIU. Now, where did the public employee unions donate in the last several elections for governor? Hmm. Yeah. Where did the Oregon Restaurant Association contribute in the last couple races for governor? Hmm. Now you wonder, is this a scientific restriction? to shut down our fitness centers that haven't been a serious generator of, of cases of COVID and, 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 and where transmissions are happening while we're leaving open an institution that's responsible for one-fourth of all cases here in Lane County? Do you think maybe if you're, you know, trying to connect a few dots that maybe there might be a little bit of protection of those public employees paychecks so they don't have to go to the uh, Oregon uh, Unemployment Disaster Office that, that exists today and try and get unemployment checks. Instead, they're sending all those private people, and particularly a lot of them are low income, you know, folks that work in fitness centers and in restaurants are not exactly high-paid people. So you're sending a bunch of low-income people to that disaster that is our unemployment system with these closures and protecting a lot of people that have PERS and health insurance and everything else tied to their, you know, and, and government and union step increase automatic you know, raises and everything else that go in there. Um, those are the folks that are protected and aren't going to be on the unemployment lines. 
Meanwhile, all these low-income service industry folks are being tossed to the curb, uh, you know, while the governor, you know, proposes to put $146 million in her budget to uh, finally fix the, uh, the absolutely antique COBOL computer system that, is, that runs our unemployment system. And, and, you know, mind you, we've had over $80 million sitting in a bank account to do that for 12 years. You know, it, it, it just, it, you kind of start wondering, you know, is, is this really a science-based decision or is this politics? You know, why are you killing this in these, these industries with these restrictions? Why do they make sense? Let alone some of the craziness. Let's talk about one more of the restrictions. In the extreme level, we have to tell our grocery stores they're only allowed to have 50% capacity inside the store, which I guess they determine that by their fire capacity under the uh, the fire code rating for the maximum occupancy of the of the of the store. Um, but you know, which I doubt, except for maybe the Friday, you know. The, maybe the, the Friday before Thanksgiving or something like that, uh, grocery stores get close to those maximum <laughs> occupancies, but uh, or maybe Black Friday. Um, but it just it's, it's there's another places. When have you heard about a customer of a grocery store getting COVID at the grocery store? Once again, you know, think about that. Is that where our transmissions are happening? Yet that's one of the restrictions we're putting in place, which drives the whole scare thing that the next thing they're going to do is close grocery stores so people start panic buying and hoarding. You know, as soon as she announced this freeze, you couldn't get into Costco. And I'm, I'm worried, you know, when they start, you know, putting people at the doorways to the local Fred Meyer saying, I'm sorry, you can't come in yet until somebody leaves because we're at our 50% capacity. That's going to drive a whole nother round of panic buying and hoarding. It's, it's just, you know, it's terrible. And who gets hurt by that? The people that can't afford to hoard, that ha- that can't buy, you know, weeks worth of supplies because they're living paycheck to paycheck or they're living unemployment check from unemployment check because they've already been tossed out by the unscientific closure of their industry. You know, it just, I don't get it. You know, you want to call in here at 646-721-9887 and tell me you think that the governor's restrictions make scientific sense and are based on data Go right ahead. I want to hear it, but I just don't get it. You know, if if you're concerned about the transmission of COVID, why are we not even addressing our college systems in this state? Hmm. Think about it a minute. I wonder, could it be because the college systems are populated with public employee union employees. Yeah, I just, it just, yeah, it, that, that's the only thing I can think of. And if you close those down, you lose that tuition income and it becomes a burden on the state. And of course, you know, yeah, it just, it's, yeah. I, I'm just, I, I haven't heard of a state agency that's closed down and, and, you know, to the point where their employees have had to apply for unemployment yet. Yeah. I know that a lot of them are having budget problems and stuff like that, but I haven't heard, you know, because of COVID and the risk, we're going to close this agency or, or um, make them, you know, lay off half their people because uh, they can't do what they're supposed to be doing. Like, I haven't heard of the DMV workers being laid off. You know, they're technically working from home, <laughs> a lot of them. 
but yeah, it just, uh, uh, I don't understand the gymnasiums and fitness centers. You know, it, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. We're just not seeing the transmissions there. Well, I'll probably move on from the COVID topic and we'll, we'll move on to some other stuff, but just, just a reminder, you can give us a call 646-721-9887 if you want to chime in on COVID and restrictions, you know, or if you want to talk about any other topic here on the Bo's Nose Show. Again, it's 646-721-9887. Don't forget to press one so Robin, my call screener and producer extraordinaire, knows you want to get in on the conversation here on the Bo's Nose Show. And, uh, you know, just before we leave the whole COVID thing, Folks need to start emailing and calling the governor's office. I mean, we've got basically the governor creating law. And and I know that, you know, the, the state Supreme Court seems to be in her pocket and won't knock her down for this because most of them were appointed by her. Um, but you just can't ignore the fact that, you know, here she's giving out punishing fines, you know, quote, civil fines, which if you ask me, they're, they're, they're at a level that would be considered a criminal punishment. When you're, you know, the gym owner in Salem that left his gyms open was fined $90,000 and is being threatened with a daily fine now, um, if he continues to leave them open, yet still, is it based on science to close them in the first place? You know, I, I just we we've got to start letting the governor know we want science-based decisions when it comes to protecting us from COVID. You know, we hear that all the time when it comes to climate change. Oh, we got to be led by the science and stuff like that. And we were hearing it about COVID too, you know, that, you know, you know, that's why we're supposed to wear a mask is the science supports it, right? Where's the science that supports closing fitness centers? You know, where's the science that supports closing restaurants and forcing people into private social gatherings where we are seeing transmissions? Oh, well. Now we'll talk about something equally frustrating for me, which is writing land use code. Uh, and I'm probably going to lose most of my audience here on the Bose Nose Show because it, it, this is a topic that kind of gets esoteric. So I'll try and keep it at a high level. Land use code determines whether or not you can get the initial right to build something and whether it's even allowable for you to build something. So you have to get your land use approval before you can even apply for a building permit. Simple thing, you know, I'll, I'll boil it down to that simple little thing that it's the first step in getting a building permit. So for all those folks that are wanting to rebuild after the fire, one of the first things they're going to, ch you know, be checked is, is can you rebuild? You know, do you have the land use permission in the, for the property you want to build on? to be able to rebuild your structure. Now, a lot of the structures that were destroyed in the Holiday Farm Fire are along the Mackenzie River, which means they are in the flood plain. Not the floodway, but the flood plain, which is kind of where water you know, pools up over the riverbank you know, and can be less than a foot deep and still be flood plain um, and, and basically just you know, six-inch deep standing water during a 100-year flood makes it part of the flood plain. Uh, so one of the things that they'll be checking is, you know, what are the rules around flood plain when they want somebody to reconstruct from the Mackenzie River and, and the Holiday Farm fire? Well, the board's been looking at this revised flood plain ordinance since before the fire. And one of the things that, you know, some of the board finally came to the realization of is if we pass this ordinance and the rules get stricter, 
everyone that lost their home in the floodplain during that fire is going to have to build the new rules unless we're able to write a really good exemption for fire victims, which they've done a partial job of and, and, and trying to keep the fire victims under the old rules. But yesterday I pointed out to the board we're adding a section into our floodplain code that no other county in the state has about compensatory fill, which I, you know, basically means that if you do some fill on your lot to elevate your house, you've got to excavate on your lot an equal amount to compensate for that fill. Um, and it can be problematic on a small lot um, and, and problematic to get it hydraulically connected with the floodplain. Uh, it's, it's just it creates cost. Well, that portion of the ordinance wasn't waived by the exemption for fire victims. And I pointed that out to the board before we moved, before it was, the vote was taken to move this on without exempting the, the fire victims. I really wanted them to remove that portion because I think it's, it, it's fraught with problems even for people not victims of the Holiday Farm fire. Um, but our board chose to move that forward knowing after I had expressly pointed out that victims of the Holiday Farm Fire are going to run into problems with the compensatory fill requirements in the new code because they will it will apply to them. You know, even though they don't have to elevate the extra foot because we wrote an exemption about that, they still have to do the compensatory fill or pay for an engineering study to determine whether there's no rise, which, you know, first of all, that's not a guarantee. And those engineering studies cost almost as much as it takes to elevate a house an extra foot. Um, so it, it's not a, you know, it's either compensatory fill or the engineering study. If the engineering study shows there's rise, you're back to the compensatory fill. Um, so it's something that's going to apply to these fire victims. And one of the things I think the board also fails to understand is even our old rule is going to cause some issues for fire victims. A lot of these homes that burnt down were built before 1975. And that is when really the 100-year flood elevation was actually established along the Mackenzie by FEMA. Uh, you know, it was somewhere in the mid-70s because the National Flood Insurance Program didn't even come into existence until that act was passed in 1968. It took them two more years to actually get a um, department set up and funded by Congress. It took them several more years even to get the thing ramped up and started to, it, it, you know, as it rolled out and communities got floodplain maps and, and, and wrote floodplain ordinances and qualified for flood insurance program. You know, it didn't get out here, you know, till the mid 70s or later. So everything that was built prior to 1975 was probably not built one foot above the 100-year flood elevation, which is our current code, which wasn't adopted by Lane County until 1982. So it's actually possible for anything prior to 1982 to run into this problem, to where those victims rebuilding from the fire, even if they rebuild in the exact same footprint, will have to elevate their house to one foot above the 100-year flood elevation, which it may not have been in the first place, which might require fill in order to do, which means they run into that compensatory fill problem. And I, you know, I clearly outlined this during the board meeting yesterday, yet our three progressive board members chose to support it. And even Commissioner Farr voted in favor of moving to the next reading. Now, I don't know if he'll vote for the actual ordinance when we get to the, the reading in December 15th. But, um, you know, what I was surprised was I, I, you know, was being very specific to the chair. You understand this means victims of the Holiday Farm fire are going to have to do compensatory fill and excavation. 
And, you know, she, I don't think she understood it and voted yes to move it on with that included. Um, it just surprises me. You know, and, and Commissioner Sorensen, of all people, who's an attorney, was basically saying, well, we, we don't have to have everything perfect when we pass a law. We'll figure that out after we pass it. Hmm, does that sound familiar? <laughs> we have to pass it to figure out what's in it. Well, that sounds like the Affordable Care Act to me. And boy, we found a lot of problems with that afterwards. Like you can't keep your own doctor. You can't keep your insurance that you you currently have. <laughs> and all the promises that were made before it was passed, that, that if we looked at it carefully before passing it, we might have realized that that was what was actually in the bill, that you could not keep your doctor, you could not keep your insurance. You know, uh, and, you know, passing land use law without having it be correct in the first place is just irresponsible. It's kind of like establishing restrictions to prevent the spread of a communicable disease that aren't based on how the disease is being spread in the community. It's bad government, bad governance. So not only do folks need to be contacting the governor about using science in her restrictions around COVID and, and, and you know, not punishing industries unnecessarily and creating a whole nother set of problems. You know, suicides up, drug overdoses are up in our community. Hmm, wonder if that has anything to do with people that lost their jobs during COVID or the isolation that COVID's created. But, you know, not only do they have to contact their governor, they need to contact the board of commissioners particularly everyone but me, because I was the one, one lone no vote about moving this forward, and tell them on the floodplain stuff, either leave it alone or get it right before you pass it. None of this will fix it afterwards. There shouldn't be any rush to doing this. You know, I, I have been on the board where we went to pass 20 readings of a ordinance that dealt with land use because it's that important. We're only at our fifth reading on this. It's not like we have to somehow or another, you know, there's some deadline that we have to meet. There's nothing hanging over our heads to make us have to pass this floodplain ordinance. And in fact, that whole part of that compensatory fill is something that we've written here in Lane County from whole cloth it's not part of the model code that LCDC recommended. It's nothing that FEMA wants us to do. It's something that we just chose and, and our staff wrote up and, and we're gonna throw it in there and create a whole bunch of problems. So folks need to contact the governor about using science in her COVID restrictions and they gotta contact the board and tell them that the floodplain stuff has to be right and should not impact fire victims, which means get rid of compensatory fill requirements. So my rant about bad government. <laughs> Let's talk about some good government. Because there is such a thing as good government. And one of those places we're seeing good government is in our sheriff's department here in Lane County. And it, it's funny because the reason this even got brought up was because folks, for some reason, thought that there's this program where the military and, and the Department of Defense gets rid of surplus materials and allows law enforcement agencies, local law enforcement agencies like EPD and the Sheriff's Office and Oregon State Police to get surplus military equipment uh, for free, basically. <laughs> uh, and 
as they as they're surplusing it out rather than destroying it and, and put it and fill, you know, ending up in a landfill. So we've taken advantage of that program very well here uh, uh, with the, the Lane County Sheriff's Office. Uh, we're really good at writing the, the, the grant applications to get the equipment, and we've received quite a bit of it. But for some reason, it kind of got out into the whole Black Lives Matter police reform and defund that, that this military equipment is part of the problem and it's causing, you know, the, the violence and stuff like that. And I don't think people understand what equipment we're getting and how it's used and how it actually prevents the problems that the folks that are concerned about police violence against citizens, you know, want to stop. You know, our sheriff's office is making such great use of that military surplus equipment to de-escalate situations and provide separation between, you know, uh, folks that are, are um, suspects and the law enforcement officers and and provide a way to resolve a situation without placing the law enforcement officer in a situation where they have to make that life and death decision about using force to protect themselves or the public. And they've done it in such a great way that just, you know, that use of force does not happen very often here in Lane County. Uh, unfortunately, it happened this week here in Eugene because you had a situation where two officers were outside of their vehicle as somebody charged them with a knife. Um, and that situation put the officers in that decision mode of, is this guy going to, you know, harm me bodily and possibly my life? And, you know, at that point, can I use deadly force to, to control the situation. Well, this military equipment that we've gotten has really made a difference in our ability to not get to that stage of where there's a confrontation face-to-face -face with somebody that, that is creating that decision for a law enforcement officer, should I use deadly force? Because some of the things we've gotten from the military are is armored vehicles. And people are like, why in the world would a police force need an armored vehicle? Well, I know two situations that happened within miles of my house here in, in Elmira, beautiful downtown Elmira, where the LCSO has used those armored vehicles to deal with situations in a way that ultimately led to no conflict and no shots fired by law enforcement officers. The first one was serving a search warrant to a property that is basically a homeless compound in a way because it's got multiple sheds and uh, RVs and cars and tents on it where people are all living in, in various areas, and it's hard, difficult to tell where people live and where they don't, many hiding spots. So it's this rural piece of property, with multiple acres with all these various sheds and all on it. And there was, you know, a couple of the known occupants of this property are um, past felons, uh, still under supervision, and it was reported to the sheriff's office that they were in possession of firearms, which is not allowed. You know, and uh, in order to determine that, then there was enough probable cause to get a warrant to go on the property to search for those firearms. Um, how do you get into that property safely to search for firearms where there's known felons, known, it, it, this property is also known for drug use and other uh, property crime. You know, it, it's a dangerous place for a law enforcement officer to enter. In in comes the armored vehicles. Now we have more than one, and and there so that makes them able to cover 
you know, a couple entrances to the property with the vehicles so that, you know, as they enter one, everyone doesn't squirt out the other. Um, and they come on the property with the, the vehicle, you know, the, the Bearcat that they have and announce over the public speaker system that they're serving a search warrant and for folks to come out, you know, peacefully and, and um, ultimately that's what happened. Now, mind you, those deputies being inside and surrounded 360 degrees by armor that's able to withstand rifle fire, because, you know, the the vest you wear um, a lot of times in the field will not withstand a high-power rifle round. They'll they'll stop a pistol round, but they're not going to stop, you know, a high-powered rifle like a a deer um, rifle or an AR-15. So being inside that vehicle on a loudspeaker, no threat. The people could have come out brandishing guns and all that stuff. They would not have to worry about deciding whether they had to fire or not. They could have just sat there and waited, you know, and been fine. Ultimately, everyone was, you know, um, accounted for on the property. They were able to search the buildings, and they found 17 firearms, during that search, you know, and the felons illegally in possession of the firearms, including one of them that was left loaded with the safety off where a child was sleeping. So the ability of that surplus military equipment to be able to, to, to you know, safely enter that property and do that safe search and seizure may have saved a child's life and protected all those people, those suspects. You know, they may have not had any firearms there and been completely innocent. Never once was there a need for a decision by a law enforcement officer. I'm threatened. The public's threatened. I have to decide whether to use deadly force because they're sitting inside an armored vehicle with 360 degrees of protection. That's how that 1033 military surplus equipment saves lives. And it's not just the law enforcement, it saves the suspects' lives. Just juxtapose that with the search warrant served at Brianna Taylor's apartment and what ended up happening there. That's, you know, one of the high-risk places, you know, when you're, you're entering a, an apartment like that, you know, that's where some of the other military equipment comes in handy. One of the things we've been able to get from them are these small little robots on tracks. You know, it's a little robot, remote control, you know, just like, you know, the remote control cars that have cameras on them. They can send those into a building and look to see that the building's clear before they send people in. Another way of de-escalating. They also were able to use that surplus military system to get infrared imaging devices so they can actually search you know, areas quickly where you can see the heat signature of a person's body much faster than you could ever with visible light. So you're not putting yourself in the danger of trying to search physically through brush. You can literally see through the brush to there's a person hiding in there. Or there's a injured person back there that needs our help if it's a search and rescue operation. Another way that that military equipment distances the law enforcement from a possible threat and also aids our search and rescue teams. And don't think those robotic cameras sometimes can't be used, say, post an earthquake or something like that to do search work instead of endangering somebody personally. So there's so many places that that military equipment is being so well utilized. Now, that second situation that happened near my house, the sheriff's office actually made a video that I think will become available on their Facebook page soon um, about a particular incident 
that uh, there is a dispute that arose um, and a person that was living in the uh, a garage, uh, lower floor garage of a house that was converted to kind of a group home, uh, got upset at a construction crew and threatened that he was going to go get his rifle, never showed a rifle at the time, but he was going to come back and shoot everybody with a rifle. And a couple deputies responded to the house, and while knocking on the door, uh, multiple gunshots were fired through the door, and, uh, you know, deputies scrambled, you know, withdrew, um, and, you know, they brought in the armored uh, vehicles and all, and were able to reapproach the house in armor, and ultimately it resolved peacefully, uh, even though you know, they show video and, and photos of everywhere those pieces of armored equipment were hit by gunfire. And the guy had an old uh, Soviet, uh, you know, uh, uh, military rifle that he was using and discharged somewhere between 40 and 100 rounds uh, of, of ammunition at the deputies. And you could see all the strikes in, you know, where the paint, you know, had come off this equipment. And, uh, you know, it, that kind of weapon would penetrate a patrol car. It would penetrate a, a, a uh, body vest. It, it's just, you know, unless you're wearing, you know, plate armor, uh, it's, it's just not, you know, you've got to be in that armored vehicle, allow them to approach, isolate the area, evacuate adjacent uh, houses um, and and peacefully end that situation. And you know, and and take that person into custody. And that you know that's that's where that military equipment has been so useful. And the value of that equipment to the you know where we would have had to spend money for that sort of stuff is well over a million dollars we've gotten from the military, you know, where we haven't had to spend local tax dollars to outfit the, the sheriff's office. And then we get this equipment that really, you know, particularly some of that infrared imaging scopes and all that uh, really allow um, uh, an expanded capacity for our search and res- rescue teams um, when they're out there in the brush and, you know, they even uh, talk about those those tracked remote camera vehicles. They'll send those in before they send a police dog in to protect the police dog so the police dog doesn't end up getting shot by a suspect or something like that. They can send that unmanned vehicle in. You know, if the unmanned vehicle gets shot, well, we might have lost a $10,000 robot, um, but no one's gotten hurt. It's property damage. You know, so it's a really great program. You know, you'll hear that 1033 military surplus and how bad it is for law enforcement. They've got all this military equipment. Well, that military equipment allows us to not have to make that deadly force decision. It protects, you know, bystanders. It protects the the suspects. It protects the deputies. You know, and think about it. What, how, what would the outcome be different, maybe, if there been some kind of protection between the EPD officers and the guy charging with a knife? You know, if they've been able to retreat to something that was armored, you know, or if maybe before they ran down that alley after the suspect, they sent a robot around the corner with a camera first, uh, you know. You know, they probably didn't have time in that case to do so, but there are situations where we can mobilize that equipment and definitively, I, I will never avoid all cases of where it gets to the point of a of, uh, law enforcement officer having to make that decision of whether or not to use deadly force. But we can certainly do our best, and that military equipment helps us do that here in Lane County. 
it's being utilized so well by our, our Lane County Sheriff's Office. I just got to, you know, give kudos to them. Um, and they're, they're, they're the model. In fact, um, one of the things, you know, the, the applications to get this surplus equipment actually have to go through the state. Um, and the state refers other counties and agencies to our Sheriff's Department for the, the how-tos and the best ways to make use of that equipment because we've, we've demonstrated over the years um, such a great ability to, to, you know, write good applications and make good use of the equipment um, that were the model for the rest of the state. So kind of one of those things, you know, as you hear that, that cry of defund the police, um, not all agencies are equal and that, blanket sort of solution doesn't always work. You know, defunding an agency that's doing great work, you know, that's supporting things like the mental health crisis response in West Lane County now with the extra resident deputies we put out there, um, that doesn't exist without the police. So when you defund the police, you defund some of that stuff too. Um, so, Blanket solutions don't work just like they don't work necessarily when you're writing restrictions for prevention of communicable diseases if you don't understand each community's uh, pathways for transmission and where that need is to, to disconnect those pathways. And if it's not fitness centers, why are you closing fitness centers? Am I digressing again there, Robin? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I keep going back to that. I'm sorry. It just it some the engineer in me and the science based person gets driven crazy by stuff like that, where people are just not using data, and 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 when the data is right there in front of them. Oh, I got a crazy stuff that if you want to hear it. Sure. Um, first of all, this one. Now, this is raw video, so I don't know, because I can't preview it, but this is a blast from the past. I, I love these members that get up and say, read the bill. What good is reading the bill if it's a thousand pages and, and you don't have uh, two days and two lawyers to find out what it means after you read the bill? That was John Converse on the Affordable Care Act. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and our, flood, our floodplain ordinance is not a thousand pages. <laughs> yeah, maybe it should be. Who knows? No, uh, it shouldn't. It should be short. Short. Good law should be short. That makes it too easy. Yeah. Um, here's one I found kind of interesting. Um, <clears throat> over in Bend, Oregon, uh, prosecutor declined to file criminal charges against. Uh, protesters who participated in a dem demonstration on a public sidewalk against the governor's mass mandate, saying that First Amendment counts, um, because there were se several people that called in to the police, and I'm no, actually four people called in. And I'm thinking, what about Portland? Yeah, yeah, it, it's uh, it's been interesting to watch this. Um, exercise in trying to get people to give up constitutional rights on the basis of a public health emergency. And uh, what I felt has gone way past the limits of the governor's emergency powers and executive powers versus legislative powers. Um, you know, it's pretty clear under the Oregon Constitution that the governor cannot write law. Yeah. And, and some of these uh, new uh, OSHA rules and the fines that they're trying to impose sure seem like a law to me. Um, well, like that $90,000 fine, I mean, how can they be fined under what grounds? Yeah. You know, yeah. What law did they violate? Yeah. A um, little bit of research that I did on what powers that our governor has, 
under an emergency, they can control the police, they can control the roadways, but unless a court overruled or added to it, they can't control, they can't force you to stay in your house. Now, and the Supreme Court just recently slapped down Governor Cuomo about controlling religious gatherings and basically said, you know, a 5-4 decision, I was surprised it was that close, that, you know, he can't, you know, control people's right to freedom of religion. Right. Um, And, you know, the governor's new restrictions uh, definitely include restrictions on religious institutions, despite the fact that there was a Supreme, recent Supreme Court ruling written. Um, we have had some outbreaks tied to religious um, gatherings, so at least that one has some basis in transmission. Um, I don't know that there have been uh, much in, here in Lane County, but there, there definitely was some out in eastern Oregon uh, a particularly large outbreak that was tied to a church. Um, but, you know, still, you know, you kind of wonder, you know, we're, we're accepting so much mandate from from government and, and being trained to accept that mandate under this whole COVID emergency. Um, you know, and the next thing that's going to come and I'm really concerned about this, is the tying of uh, things like um, uh, uh, rental relief or unemployment benefits to having to get a vaccine. Some kind of mandating of vaccination is a prerequisite, A, to getting benefit B from, from the government. Or being allowed to exercise some right like travel must have evidence that you have the vaccine to, you know, travel. Now, if it's a private airline that's saying we want, you know, you to show that, you know, bring us a a certificate of vaccination or whatever. I almost feel like dogs with the rabies vaccines (laughs) to get a license. But, you know, um, if it's, if it's the airline as a private industry saying we don't want, you know, we don't want to fly people on our planes that haven't been vaccinated. That's one thing. But if it's the government saying we're not going to let you pass TSA unless you have a, a certificate, that's restrictions on your freedom to travel. Yeah, but something, this is a couple of years ago when I was uh, truck driving, I brought this question up uh, with CPAP machines and everything, you know, for um sleep apnea, because there are different treatments, but in the trucking industry, they require you use the machine because it could be tracked. So the question was, is that if you weren't doing it for a certain percentage, you could lose your job. So I asked the state of Oregon, um, <clears throat> Bureau of Labor, I says, if, okay, so you go away for two weeks, you're out in the woods, there's no power, you don't use CPAP, you know, can you get fired? And they said, well, yeah. And I says, okay, well, how about this? Company requires that I have the company logo tattooed on my left arm and I refuse. Can they fire me for that? They said yes. So you could you could have, uh, um, you know, the restrictions, like you say, is like uh, a job could say, unless you are vaccinated, you're not going to be allowed to work. Yeah, and I think some of those restrictions have to pass some legal muster yeah Um, you know there's certain things like you can't say you have to be a certain race or you can't work here right yeah or or you have to be a certain sex or a certain age you know there are all sorts of places where you cannot establish those restrictions and i imagine you'd have a tough time getting um the courts to agree that that getting a company tat logo tattooed on your forearm uh you know would be constitutional. Yeah. I got something for you. Tell me who said this. If you tell a big enough lie and tell it frequently enough, it will be believed. Who said that? Is that Goebbels? Adolf Hitler. Ah, I knew it was one of the Nazis. I couldn't remember which one. (laughs) 
So enter Facebook. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Don't get me started with Facebook and Twitter right now. Yeah. One of the biggest things I've got as we're coming up towards the new year is kind of a joke. You know, 2021 saying to 2020, here, hold my beer. Yeah. 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 I think I, I, think I initiated that one. <laughs> it's so true. Yeah. And, you know, and it's just this acceptance of, of restrictions uh, that they're pushing out, out on us. Um, you, you kind of wonder, what, what are they setting us up to accept? Well, Christmas is canceled. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it's interesting what, what's being canceled. You know, we, we weren't going to cancel, you know, protests in Portland over, over COVID. You know, even during the, the August surge, they still allowed those to happen. Um, but, you know, getting together with your family for Thanksgiving dinner, uh, no more than six people, no more than two households. Yeah, or tell you to stay home and they go to, to Hawaii for a meeting. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah, don't don't do as I say, do as do as I, you know, do, yeah, do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> I tell you didn't have kids. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, yeah, you can tell. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, this whole Facebook and Twitter thing, you know, marking posts that, you know, are in dispute supposedly, um and, and yet they spent years not marking any posts about you know, Trump and Russia collusion as quote in dispute. Uh, it's you know and, and you know the current mainstream media and their partial quotation of um, our Attorney General um, on his comments around uh, you know, election fraud. You know they missed the entire quote. Yeah. You know, it just it get you know it kills me. And it's like, what are they, you know, what are they setting us up to start accepting in the way of restrictions, start letting us, you know, uh, restricting uh, the news that we're allowed to have, or at least, you know, you know, not allowing us to decide whether something's, you know, true or not. They're pre-labeling it for us, you know, and that, that it just, it's starting to sound you know, really scary to me. Well, just like on Facebook, speaking of, I had it set so that Trump was my first feed, and it worked fine till the election. Now, if I want to see what what he's doing, I have to go search for him. Hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> like they say, is that uh, you know, if they say it long enough, people will believe it, and there's there's no collusion. Yeah. Yeah. Say yeah, Trump Russia collusion for you know three plus years, and uh, we we question anything about the election, like ballots that showed up well past deadlines being counted, um, you know, thumb drives being found and entered into the system. Uh, none of that's supposed to be you know questionable, and the thing is is that blind adherence to nothing was wrong with this election is going to lead to allowing that, the, whatever allowed that to happen in this election to be available as a, as a fault in the next election. And, you know, election integrity should be important to everybody. And, and will it turn this election over to look into that stuff? I don't know. And I don't think it will at this point. But why not look into every accusation, get to the bottom of it, and fix the um, backdoor hole in the system, lack of a safety check, whatever it was that allowed that to happen? Like, how could they find a thumb drive later on in a county in Georgia that had votes on it? Weren't all those, if they were distributing thumb drives to gather data from machines, to bring them into a central county area, wouldn't you think they'd have serial numbers and be uh, logged out and in? You know, printed every, or like you say, yeah. a serial number or something printed on the ballot showing that it's been 
processed. In fact, remember Florida, hanging chads? I didn't know what it, those things were called until Florida. Yeah, yeah. And, and after that, they went away from punch ballots to optical scan ballots because everybody realized punch ballots weren't a good thing. Exactly. You know, um, so, you know, it, it's like look into the issues. Whether it'll change the election or not, I, you know, that's not important. If there's a problem, get it, you know, get it secured. We need to secure fair elections where we know only people qualified for vote to vote actually were allowed to vote. And those qualified votes were all counted and they were counted accurately. Exactly. No matter who wins, you yeah. know, it was done properly. Yeah. All right. Well, we're past our time for the for the night, and uh, I probably should feed some poodles and and feed the wife and a few other things. So I'm going to sign off here for the Bose Nose Show for this week. We'll be back next week, and maybe we'll talk about redistricting a little bit then, because that is the building block to our elections. So have a great week. Thank you for listening to us coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira. Talk to you next week. Thank mm-hmm. you.